Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we look at housing trends in Connecticut. This is the season realtors hope for strong home sales. But what's driving the construction of new apartments over single-family homes? We'll find out. And from housing to the homeless, the state likes to tout its achievements reducing homelessness in Connecticut. But will that work be undone with fewer federal dollars to pay for housing supports? An affordable housing advocacy group will join us later. But first, James Comey is back in the spotlight today as the former FBI director testifies in front of the Senate's Intelligence Committee. Now, last month, Comey was fired by President Trump. The reasons Mr. Trump and the White House have given have been all over the map. He's a showboat. He's a grandstander. The FBI has been in turmoil. You know that. I know that. Everybody knows that. That's President Trump speaking to NBC's Lester Holt last month. What will James Comey's testimony today achieve? For critics of the president, will Comey's remarks be enough to prove obstruction of justice? We'll get some legal analysis in just a few minutes. And you can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, one of the Americans who'll be listening closely and watching is Connecticut U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. He joins us now by phone. Senator Blumenthal, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. Thanks, Lucy. We know that uh, James Comey has already released his written remarks to the Senate Intelligence Committee, his opening statement, asserting that President Trump told him during one of several meetings, quote, I need loyalty. I expect loyalty. What's your reaction to that and the rest of Comey's testimony released yesterday? This testimony has all the makings of a bombshell. The reaction has been uh, astonishing. Uh, the Pledge of Loyalty, obviously, was not to the nation or to the United States. It was to President Trump personally that he was demanding. And in addition, the testimony goes on to describe a separate meeting when Comey was demanded to drop the Flynn investigation, and then, of course, the subsequent conversations when, uh, again, loyalty was demanded by Trump. It all seems to point to an effort to stop the investigation. I think one of the key questions for Comey during the hearing today will be, what was the tone and apparent motive, the intent, because that really reflects on what the president's purpose was in asking for a pledge of loyalty, demanding that the investigation be dropped, and then firing Comey when he refused to do either of those things. And the the underlying question may well be, what did Michael Flynn know about Donald Trump that led the president to want that investigation shut down? And of course, Michael Flynn has yet to testify anywhere. Hmm. Now, uh, Mr. Comey also confirmed that uh, during all of those meetings, those one-on-ones with President Trump, he told him at least three times that he, Trump, was not personally under investigation. But that was before President Trump fired uh, James Comey. You know, what other questions do you want to hear lawmakers ask uh, James Comey today? The, the fact that 
Jim Comey told the president that he wasn't under investigation in January, February, by no means is a conclusive sign that he isn't under investigation now or perhaps wasn't in March when Trump fired Comey. So investigations develop and evolve. They have new targets as more facts become apparent, as evidence is pursued as a former United States attorney as well as attorney general. I know that investigations can have snapshots, but they develop as new witnesses and new documents reflect on new targets. And so uh, that's why this testimony will be so pivotal, perhaps a turning point, because it will reflect the evidence known now, perhaps, rather than what was known back then in January or February. And what about the role of Attorney General Sessions, this idea that the president um, asked for one-on-one meetings with uh, the director of the FBI, an independent uh, part of the DOJ? What was Jeff Sessions' role in all of this, allowing those meetings to even happen? Jeff Sessions was told by Comey that he, Comey, didn't want to be in a room alone with the president of the United States. And, of course, Comey documented all of his meetings in contemporaneous memoranda. But here's a point that I think has been lost, and it concerns Jeff Sessions, too. Sessions, Flynn, Jared Kushner, all had meetings that they concealed with the Russians. That's the reason that Sessions had to recuse himself. That's the reason there is an investigation, because the Russians interfered in our election, and then the investigation concerned whether the Trump campaign colluded, aided and abetted, cooperated with the Russian meddling. That's the focus of the FBI ongoing investigation and the special prosecutor's involvement. I called for a special prosecutor way back in February and, as a matter of fact, voted against Rod Rosenstein as deputy attorney general because he refused to commit to a point a special prosecutor. I was the only member of the Judiciary Committee to vote against him. Now we have a special prosecutor. Now the special prosecutor should be focusing on the Russian meddling, the potential Trump campaign collusion, and perhaps the obstruction of justice that has occurred since then. But those conversations concealed by Sessions, Kushner, and Flynn are very, very relevant. And they may be the reason why Donald Trump wanted that investigation shut down. Uh, that's U.S. Senator from Connecticut, Richard Blumenthal, on the phone with us today on Where We Live as we preview this uh, much-anticipated testimony from James Comey before the Senate Intelligence uh, Committee. Uh, I wanted to bring another voice into the conversation, uh, Ross Garber, an attorney, chair of the Government Investigations Group at law firm Shipman and Goodwin in Hartford and Washington, D.C. Ross, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Lucy. Now, you've represented three governors in impeachment proceedings. You've been following the news surrounding James Comey. What's your reaction after reading his written testimony released yesterday? I, I, look, I think Senator Blumenthal is right. I think there are lots of questions uh, that should be asked that need answers. Um, I think uh, Congress is uh, engaging in that process now. The D- Justice Department is engaging in that process now. And uh, Mr. Comey's testimony will be will be interesting uh, it, w- with respect to that. I'm, I don't I don't think anybody should expect today to 
end anything, but it'll be part of the process. Do you agree with Senator Blumenthal that you know he expects this to to you know be a bombshell, or that we we should be anticipating that James Comey will um, disclose some things we haven't heard yet? Well, I think it's going to be one of the things that people are going to be listening for. I'd be surprised if there's a bombshell. I think uh, you know that by releasing the testimony, uh, the printed re- uh, remarks yesterday, uh, it, it probably uh, reduced the likelihood of a bombshell. But I think Senator Blumenthal's right. There are going to be a lot of questions today, including questions, I think, about uh, Mr. Comey's own uh, statements during those meetings and reactions and, and in some cases, lack of reactions during the meetings. I wanted to to talk about obstruction of justice. You know, how difficult is that to prove against a sitting president? Well, it it may be impossible to prove uh, because... uh, I think most legal scholars think that a sitting president is immune from prosecution, particularly for actions uh, related to their office. Uh, in general, uh, this kind of obstruction of justice is uh, is quite difficult to prove. Uh, but here, I, I think it has probably a broader uh, context and, and potentially broader implications in that even if there's uh, no uh, prosecution for uh, obstruction of justice, uh, one of the reasons why people are, are using that and talking about that is uh, is because it's become part of the narrative. As Senator Blumenthal said, uh, it's it raises questions about uh, about people's. Uh, people's actions, about the president's actions. But I think as a practical matter here, uh, I think we we should not expect to see a prosecution for obstruction of justice. And Senator Blumenthal also raised the question of intent. Uh, Based on what uh, James Comey has written, uh, what has been reported um, extensively, and then today, depending on what he's going to say before the Senate intelligence uh, hearing, you know, what what will we expect to hear about that question of intent? Is it enough to prove that uh, the president is hiding something? Yeah. Well, look. I, again, I think that's going to be one of the one of the key questions: is is what did the president intend? And you know, if you step back for a second. One way to look at this is the president came from the private sector. He's uh, this is his first elected office, and you know, as a private citizen in the private sector, you know, imagine that you've been accused in the press uh, of something that you you believe you didn't do, you know, you didn't do. Uh, and there's an investigation about it, and that it's you know deeply affecting your ability to get your job done and deeply affecting the people around you. You can imagine somebody in that context would want to say, "Hey, look, you know can you can you you know make clear that I'm not under investigation uh, you know can we can we clarify this? Can we you know get to the bottom line sooner rather than later you know for all of those reasons?" Now, you know, people with long histories in public service know that there are lots of reasons why you wouldn't want to have that conversation. And, you know, one of the things I I would expect uh, Mr. Comey to be asked is why he didn't explain that to the president. You know, his written testimony has uh, recounts this, you know, odd exchange where the president supposedly asked for loyalty uh, and uh, and Mr. Comey sort of sat there stone-faced. He said he didn't move a muscle. You know, I'm... You know, one of the questions I think we we should expect that Mr. Comey is going to be asked is, well, you know, why didn't you explain to the president, you know, why that's not how it works? Why, you know, say, hey, look, I, you know, I was, I've served both 
uh, administrations. I've, I've, uh, I was nominated by President Obama for a 10-year term. Uh, you've indicated that you're not going to fire me. I still have years left on that term. Uh, and I'm going to I'm going to do my job. I'm going to shoot straight. I have no axe to grind with, you know, you or anybody else. But uh, we should also expect that, you know, people down the road are going to ask about this conversation that you and I are having. And we want to make sure that neither of us says anything that could be construed as inappropriate. And so, you know, that's that's, you know, that's what I'm telling you. Uh, I think I, I think Mr. Comey will be asked, you know, why he wasn't more direct with the president about that and sort of sat stone-faced and then, you know, came up with this construction about, uh, you know, pledging honest loyalty. I mean, I don't know what that means, and I, I think Mr. Comey will be asked about that. Senator Blumenthal, do you want to respond uh, to Ross's points? Ross uh, makes some very good points. He's an experienced and able attorney, and he knows that obstruction of justice laws and prohibitions apply not only to public officials and presidents, but to everyone. In other words, Donald Trump had, has been in the business world for a number of decades, 40 years. As a businessman, he knows, having been involved extensively in litigation, that obstruction of justice is a crime, and telling a prosecutor or a law enforcement official, an FBI agent, a cop on the beat, to avoid looking into a crime could be a violation of criminal law. So I think he has to be held to a standard that an informed person would be expected to meet. And point number two, uh, I agree completely that this hearing is far from the end of this process. And in many ways, I sincerely regret that the country has to go through this gut-wrenching process of seeing potential obstruction of justice unfolding before it in real time. First of all, it's a distraction from the work that we need to do, rebuilding our roads and bridges and infrastructure and uh, ports and airports, as we well know in Connecticut, achieving a better health care insurance system, building on the Re Affordable Care Act, not repealing it, tax reform, immigration reform, so many challenges ahead. But the rule of law has to prevail here. Nobody is above the law. The president has to be held to a standard that everyone else meets. And the Russian meddling and interference in our election is profoundly serious because if we don't make them pay a price and if anybody cooperating with them is not made to pay a price. It will happen again and again. 2018, 2020, the intelligence community has said openly in public and testimony before the Armed Services Committee, where I sit, expect it again if we don't make the Russians pay a price now. That's a U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, who represents Connecticut, as well as uh, Chris Murphy. Thank you so much for your time, Senator Blumenthal. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. I wanted to turn back to Ross Garber before we head to break. Uh, Senator Blumenthal alluded to this. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to run this country. Meanwhile, there's FBI investigations, more congressional investigations, again, into whether uh, associates of the president, um, whether there was collusion with Russian operatives during the campaign. No idea how long this will go on. Is there should, should, should Americans have confidence in this process, Ross? Well, I uh I, I would be surprised if this is over uh, 
you know, very soon. Uh, investigations take a long time. Uh, Bob Mueller, who's heading up the investigation for the Department of Justice, is known to be thorough. Uh, and so I, I think this I think this will take a while. Um, they'll also and 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 there clearly are congressional uh, investigations going on. But I think it's for all of those uh, reasons that the American people probably should be confident uh, that uh, that that ultimately uh, they will get to the bottom of this. But you can see why, you know, given all of that, that somebody in the president's position, in the administration's position, uh, would uh, would feel consternation because, as as Senator Blumenthal alluded to, uh, it is affecting all of these investigations are are affecting uh, the agenda of an administration, and they're occupying uh, media time that could be spent talking about other issues. And so one, one could understand why I think uh, the president uh, and, and others around him might feel frustrated by all of this. That's Ross Garber, chair of the Government Investigations Group at Law Firm, law firm rather Shipman and Goodwin in Hartford and Washington, D.C. Ross, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Sure thing. Thanks, Lucy. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, just a reminder that starting at 10 this morning, we'll bring you live anchored coverage of the James Comey testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee. That's from NPR News. Now, coming up, lots of new apartments are being built in Connecticut versus a traditional single-family home. Is it about cost or something else? We'll dig into this new trend after the break, and we want to hear from you. What's leading you to downsize? Or are you a young professional looking to rent versus buy. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. The American dream. Homeownership has been a part of that dream for decades. But who's buying these days? And is home a place you own? Or is it good enough to rent? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, joining me now in studio is Tom Condon, writer for the Connecticut Mirror, covers urban and regional affairs, former chief editorial writer for the Hartford Current. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. So tell us about Connecticut's housing history before we find out uh, what we're lacking. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, see, we, we, we are seeing... Um, two trends here, and we have for the past several years, one of which is a shift away from detached single-family homes you know, that, that were being built like crazy in the years after World War II. I mean, that was the, you know, the, the Ozzie and Harriet, the move to the suburbs, the American dream, you know, the... You the see pat- those ranches <laughs> all around. All, yeah. The, the, well, yeah, all kinds, yeah, ranches and, you know, the... The lawn and you know the the uh, the crabgrass revolution. Uh, <laughs> someone called it. All right. So we have this 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 big suburban post-war suburbanization, and in some years in Connecticut in the 70s and 80s, more than 90 percent of building permits were for single-family homes. So we weren't building many apartments. Now we've seen that shift in the last 10 years. Um, as recently as 2004, uh, nearly eight, nearly. Seventy percent of of permits were still for single family. Twenty fifteen, sixty percent were for multifamily. So we've seen a switch 
from uh, from the single family detached home to many many more apartments, condos, townhouses, you know, houses that are clustered, multifamily housing. So what's driving that trend? Is it is it cost? Well, we, we, several things. Uh, families are smaller. A, you, you don't need this, you know, this big humongous McMansion, you know, if you have, if you're a married couple with one child, uh, you can live in a smaller place if, if that's your inclination. So families are smaller. Housing formation is different. They're more, uh, um, uh, you know, divorce rate is higher than it was back in 1950. The houses are be- Households are being formed differently and people living alone or people living with friends or uh, every which way from Thursday. So household formation is different. Also, younger people, millennials, interested in living in cities. Um, like like a walkable community, uh, are okay with renting uh, for a time. Uh, don't don't need to buy or often changing jobs. Don't want to be tied down to a mortgage. So so these trends all come together, and we're seeing we're seeing more single uh, you know more multifamily housing and less uh, you know fewer. I think the McMansion era is ending if, if if it's not over. I mean some are still being built, but but not at the rate that they once were. Second trend coming along, more affordable housing. State, the state of Connecticut has made a major investment in affordable housing. Um, there, there is a state law that we all know is 830G, which uh, allows developers to build affordable housing in communities that don't have very much of it. Um, there is a, a program um, that the Partnership for Strong Communities is an advocate of called Home Connecticut, which um, encourages communities to plan uh, housing incentive zones where um, developers can add density in return for building mixed income um, communities. So that is that is encouraging more affordable housing, which we need. Now, you reported on a specific, I think, mixed use or multi-home development mm-hmm. in Simsbury. Why Simsbury? Well, it, the Simsbury is uh, <laughs> it, it, it is an interesting community. It has been well led. It it wants to develop, um, create more density without without uh, ruining its quality of life, its open space, and you do you, you can do that by by building uh, multifamily housing. So uh, you know Simsbury is trying to increase the density in its town center. Increase the vitality there, but but keep its um, you know but keep its um, b- beautiful vistas and bike trail and parks and all. So uh, so Sims, you know Simsbury is um, an interesting example of that. So there are two two multifamily housing with uh, projects underway in Simsbury with an affordable component. Mm-hmm. But I asked that question, Tom, because why Simsbury? Because we know it's a wealthy town. There sure. are some wealthy suburbs in Connecticut who aren't interested in mixed family yeah. homes. Uh, yeah. I'm looking at a recent yeah. report from yeah. um, the Connecticut Mirror that the General Assembly just uh, approved a bill that would actually ease affordable housing requirements for municipalities, uh, make it easier for cities and towns to qualify for moratoriums under that 830G law that you uh, just mentioned. Yep. Yeah. yeah, well, I, it, 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 there's always a tension. Mm-hmm. There some um, some towns get the picture and some don't, but more do now than than there were than in, in years past. I mean, uh, look, the, the, a a variety of housing is a good thing, 
for one, here's a, here's one. The, the people who the people who moved into those brand new ranches after World War II are now getting older, and they want to downsize. Their kids are getting older, the boomers, and want to downsize. Well, if you don't have a mix of housing, there's nothing to downsize into, and uh, ideally. You could, if you have a good mix of housing, you can have younger families moving into the bigger homes and older families moving in back into the smaller ones. So, and a lot of a lot of towns understand this are getting the picture more more, more than they than those that, that once did. <laughs> this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tom Condon's in studio with me. He's a writer for CT Mir, covers urban and regional affairs. Um, he did a recent story about a new trend uh, in the housing market these days in Connecticut, uh, building more new apartments versus the traditional single-family home. I wanted to welcome into the discussion Amy Bergquist. She's a real estate agent in central Connecticut. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So um, you've probably heard what Tom was saying, and I'm curious, as a realtor, what what are you observing in terms of this idea of, of older couples who want to downsize, and if there's not a mixed uh, mixed home developments, there's nowhere to downsize? Yes, I mean, I see with my own clients and, and other agents in, in the area that it's a, it's a multi-year process for a lot of people because they need to determine where do they want to go next, um, and oftentimes apartments aren't where they want to go next because they've lived in a detached house for their entire lives and they don't necessarily want to go to um, attached housing with others where you're, you're in a community. Um, so, you know, they look at condos and apartments and is that acceptable to them and should they be looking at smaller single-family single homes. Um, and based on that, you know, I find that most are staying in the area and not relocating out. But it doesn't. It's not a quick process. <laughs> they have to come to the realization of I've lived in this large house for a while, and now how do I make my new space work for me? Tom. Yeah, Amy. Let me ask you something. If if um, if you and I found, founded a development company, could we make a lot of money by building smaller houses on one story for older people? Yes, but I don't know where you would get the land. <laughs> that. <laughs> a lot of the problem we're having is is that I mean there's no there's no land supply here in the in the Greater Hartford area for the most part. So you know what people are looking at, at is housing stock that's 60, 70, 80, or plus years old, and do they want to move into that as a downsizer? And then they're also competing with the millennial group who's looking to move into those homes. And before we talk about the millennials, I wanted to ask our listeners who are right now, um, are you one of these couples looking to downsize? What are you finding out there on the market? 860-275-7266. And if you're a millennial and hoping to buy, or maybe not, tell us why. 860-275-7266. Let's talk mm-hmm. about that, um, that competition, uh, oh, Tom, sure. between the millennials and the downsizers. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, a, a chronic problem in Connecticut has been retaining younger uh, uh, younger people, younger workers, college-educated workers, uh, uh, and uh, if the housing, if they have a place to live, there is a better chance of retaining them. I mean, I, I mean, look at Brooklyn. You know, 25 years ago, people were moving to Brooklyn because there was plenty of affordable housing. Well, good lord! Now, now the price of <laughs> housing prices in Brooklyn are through the roof, and companies are starting to move there. So when you get you get this, you know, you get a congregation of millennials, <laughs> if that's the right word, um, you know, some of them will start businesses, and you get a, you generate some economic development, which I think is the point behind the state's investment. 
Now, um, we, you've also reported that Stanford and Danbury, their markets are actually booming. Is it because yes. of the proximity to New York, not being able to afford New York, but wanting to be close enough and uh, hip enough? Absolutely. Absolutely. They, I mean, New York is the, the, the second largest economic engine in the world. I mean, it, and proximity to New York. Now, Stanford, uh, I mean, they're, they're slightly different stories because it's harder to get to New York from Danbury than it is from Stanford. But Stanford is is really, um, you know, it's a 40-minute train ride to New York, and um, it, it has uh, the harbor, and it, it, you know, Stanford is just, uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, there are cranes in Stanford. There are three huge multifamily projects under construction to, right now in Stanford. And not many cities can say that. <laughs> well, before we get to some calls, though, Tom, you're talking about these apartments that are being built in Stanford. But how affordable are they? The, the Stanford's uh, and it, most of those are private or are market rate apartments, and and they are for people who are making sixty thousand dollars a year or more. But but. Stanford has its own inclusionary zoning ordinance, which means that there is they offer incentives to build uh, affordable housing, and, and they are building several thousand affordable units, too. So there are two tracks going on in Stanford. Uh, this is where we live. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Gary's calling from his car. Gary, you're on the show. Hey, how are you? Good. What, what's your uh, comment or question? Uh, my wife and I... Lived in West Hartford for 26 Oh, I think we lost Gary. Gary, can you hear us? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, we can no? hear you now. So you said uh, you, you and your wife lived in a home in West Hartford for a long time, and, and now what's up? Right. Um, we sold the house a month and a half ago and moved to a loft apartment in Hartford right near Front Street. Um, it's great. You can walk to the restaurants. You can walk to the Athenaeum. Up the front well, that's, a, that's good news for officials to hear. Someone from West Hartford's <laughs> moving into Hartford. Uh, Gary, it sounds like your phone has cut out again, but thank you for, for telling us that. Amy, I wanted to go back to you. Amy Burquist, a real estate agent in central Connecticut. Is Gary's story common? People are, are moving from the burbs to come into to Hartford? We do see that a lot, and I actually live in Hartford proper and work out of West Hartford, so that is a common theme that we see. Uh, a lot of what Hartford offers downtown is one-floor living, buildings with elevators, so... They may be going to a smaller space, but it's completely accessible for somebody that wants to leave something with stairs and they, are, they want a more urban lifestyle where they can walk to shows, restaurants, that sort of thing. And as far as millennials, Amy, are you hearing from a lot of them that just want help finding uh, one of those newer apartments that Tom's <laughs> featuring in his articles? Uh, most of them have, the apartment buildings have their own rental um, companies that manage it. So the, that's typically not an agent's um, area of expertise or something that we work on. It's mostly just buying and selling. So you're hearing from the downsizers then? Yes, correct. And people that are moving out of the apartments that want to buy. So I'm, I work with a lot of millennials that have rented for a year or two that then want to move into to owning a home. Mm-hmm. Owning the home in the suburbs? Uh, to be honest with you, the last few years I have noticed suburbs, but more urban core suburbs. I've looked at my, my client list and I used to work in the Valley a lot. And now I'm not seeing that as much for younger folks. They're, they're looking in Hartford, West Hartford, Weathersfield, Newington, so very close to the Hartford inner core. Mm. I want to take another call. Sandy is calling from Deep River. Sandy, you're on the show. Uh, yes, hi. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Um, yeah, one thing that I was just going to point out is um, a few years ago, my husband and I ended up um, purchasing 
my mother's house because she's to a point where she can't get up and down stairs, and she pretty much flat out said that she's going to die in the house and never wants to leave. So we kind of evaluated where the situations were. We sold our house and um, decided that we're going to live as a multi-generational family. Um, but some of the things that I find frustrating with the our town in particular, but I think it's probably across the state, is that there are so many um, code regulations as far as what you can and can't do, um, number of kitchens, bedrooms, uh, just so many different things that that we came across in the whole design process. And, you know, unfortunately, we've had to compromise on a lot of things that we would have liked to do. Um, but, you know, we're looking at being in this house for another 20 to 25 years. So um, however long my mother is still around, you know, it, it's still it, – it, it, it's kind of frustrating in that aspect, and I just wish that, that the state would recognize and maybe change some of the regulations that this is something that I've talked to more of our friends that are really considering. You know, you're, you're combining um, assets, and you're also – you're able to care for your your parents and make sure that they're given the proper care and not just being put into an apartment, which sometimes they're still on their own for a great amount of time during the day. So that that's kind of just what I I see as as being a future trend. Well, thank you, Sandy, uh, for your call, Tom. No, uh, she she makes a great point. I mean, it's it, it's a chronic problem in many levels of government, which are keeping regulations up to date. I mean, there are a lot of zoning codes around the state, for example, that that prohibit or inhibit the kind of housing that the state needs. So, you know, we really have to keep to keep sifting through regulations, keeping them updated. You know, getting the you know getting ones that are you know that are meaningless out of the books, and and making it easier for people like Sandy to live. Absolutely. And Amy Burquist, again, a real estate agent in Central Connecticut. Did you want to chime in on on some of the regulations that could be hurting uh, the market? I, I actually completely agree with the caller. I have seen many families who want to uh, combine generations, and it's they're unable to find properties that exist. And when they want to go modify them, the town zoning laws often preclude it. Um, Hartford actually recently changed its zoning laws last January in 2016, and there are certain areas that allow accessory dwelling units in them. So if you had a multi-generational family, it would be easier to accomplish things like that. This is where we live today. We're talking about uh, this trend um, that's being seen in Connecticut, uh, more new apartments being built over the traditional single-family home. Uh, Bill's calling from Middletown. Bill, you're on the show. Hey, how you doing? Good. Go ahead. Um, a quick question is, um, so I've had some exposure, but I can't say I know all the details about like how developers can use the affordable housing aspect of things to get around like wetlands or environmental you know, so if they run into an, a wetlands problem, then they can say, oh, well, we're going to build affordable housing and then move forward with the project. All right, Bill. Good question, Tom. Uh, yeah. Uh, actually, the, the one way that a town can stop a project is through health or safety issues. If, if there is a health or safety issue, um, a, a, a town can successfully reject an 830G project. So, uh, so developers aren't are not allowed to, to traverse, or should not be allowed to traverse wetland laws, for example. 
I wanted to go back to the question of affordability and the number of affordable housing units that have been built in the last several years. Um, in terms of mm-hmm. what has been done under the Malloy administration, can you explain exactly what's out there for people that fit within that income level? Well, the, the, yeah. In, first of all, in, in, income is measured as a, a percentage of area median income. You know, so someone who someone who who was making and and projects differ. Sixty percent, sixty percent, or eighty percent of area median income would be the ceiling for people moving into some housing. Uh, so it it it, um, it varies by project. Also. Uh, state money, in, for example, in the housing in downtown Hartford, where, where nearly 1,000 units have been built so far, most of that uh, is what is called 80-20. 80% are market rate and 20% are, are affordable. And uh, the Malloy administration is, uh, has built, well, I have the numbers here somewhere, um, so, uh, more than, uh, than 10,000 units and with another 6,000 in the pipeline. Now, which is uh, significant, but there was a task force in 2001 that said the state needed 68,000 affordable units. So we still have a ways to go. (laughs) I want to take one more call before break. Uh, Ben from Madison. Ben, you're on the line. Hi, how's it going? Good, go ahead. So I just wanted to call and represent the uh, group of millennials who are, are buying houses. Uh, I bought a house last Saturday in Madison, Connecticut. Congratulations. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and for years and years, my wife and I rented. We rented for eight years. And finally, we wanted to put some equity into something. And I think there is a group of millennials who have been working since they got out of college. They've been scraping and saving. You know, the American dream, in quotes, is still alive for us. And what we want is what our parents had. We're not rebelling against the status quo. We don't need to be in the city. We've been there. We've done that. We're kind of just looking to settle down in the burbs. And I, I don't think that's a shameful thing to say. And I think there are still millennials who want what their parents had or a version thereof. Well, thank you, Ben, for your call. Uh, Amy uh, Burquist, again, a real estate agent. Uh, this must be good news when you hear uh, young millennials that are looking to buy. Yes. And I mean, I see that often with my own client base. Um, I mean, if, if you look at some of the rental rates that people are paying. So, for example, if you look at a studio downtown Hartford right now, the rent on that is equivalent to principal interest taxes and insurance um, mortgage of a $200,000 house. Mm. So, I mean, that's a starter home for a lot of people in the Hartford area. So if you're paying 1500 plus a month for rent, you can easily get a $200,000 house. Yeah. Oh, the, the distinction, notice that Ben said he and his wife rented for years. That yeah. That's the difference. I mean, millennials... Millennials, you know, will do that. I mean, uh, you're not uh, buying a house at 23 anymore. <laughs> no, that's right. Which which people did a generation ago. Well, you know, if they got yeah. married, would would buy a house <laughs> when they were 24 or something. My yeah. my parents did that. Um, you know, of course, the house cost eleven thousand dollars or something. But but uh, the it's the running for years part that we're seeing. No, I mean, some of the millennials who moved to Brooklyn, you know, will have a great time for seven or eight years, and then you know, then buy a house in Westchester or Danbury or yes, someplace. Yes, but are their parents paying for those? <laughs> apartments in Brooklyn? You bet. <laughs> <laughs> I want to take one more call. Uh, Preston from Branford. Preston, we just have a couple minutes. Go ahead. Yes, sure. Uh, I downsized from a house in Guilford and moved to Branford. I'm 60 years old and looking at retirement, and I chose a two-family house where I have a very nice tenant who helps pay my mortgage payment because I don't want to be strapped with a high rent as some of these new apartments are very expensive, or a big mortgage payment, 
I live near a train station, and I'm excited about the transit-oriented development, uh, the restaurants, and all kinds of things. And I'm ten minutes into New Haven, so. So it's, it mm. it pays to be near an urban center where there's things to do. Absolutely That's correct, and yeah. also to watch your uh, monthly payment, whether you're in a mortgage or in a rental. Well, thank you, Preston, for for your call. So that's, that's we've heard from a few couples who Absolutely. wanted to downsize but haven't left Connecticut. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. And interesting. You mentioned New Haven. Uh, I mean, people are now retiring in downtown New Haven. I mean, there is there's there has been a big surge of housing in downtown New Haven. There's a lot of new restaurants. Um, it is uh, I'm downtown New Haven is is really a good story. The Ninth Square development, and uh, you know there are people on the street all the time. It, uh, downtown New Haven is doing just fine, thank you. <laughs> well, I want to uh, thank uh, Amy Burquist uh, for joining us on the conversation again. A real estate agent in Central Connecticut, Amy. Thanks for your time. Thank you. In studio with me is Tom Condon, a writer for the Connecticut Mirror, covers urban and regional affairs. When we come back from the break, we're going to look at efforts in the state to end homelessness and hear about budget uncertainties in Hartford and in Washington. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about housing trends in Connecticut. In recent years, housing advocates and Governor Malloy's administration have touted efforts to reduce chronic homelessness and homelessness among veterans. Those successes are helped by federal dollars in the form of housing vouchers with a new administration and a budget proposal that makes big cuts to agencies like the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. What impact could Connecticut see? To help answer that question, Alicia Woodsby is on the phone, Executive Director of Partnership for Strong Communities. Alicia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Before we talk homelessness, I just wanted to get your take on our previous conversation about um, the shift towards more affordable housing units in Connecticut. Is it enough? There, you know, there's no doubt that there's been tremendous, tremendous efforts under the Malloy administration. And since he's come into leadership in, in the state, we've seen more investment than, you know, we've seen in decades. Um, but the, the need for affordable homes is pretty dire, um, and we need them in high-resource communities. Uh, we still have the sixth highest median monthly housing costs in the country, um, and those costs really, you know, they wound economic growth efforts, and as you talked about, they deter young professionals, families, and businesses from staying or locating in Connecticut. So we still have a severe shortage, but we're um, moving in the right direction with the leadership that we have in the state. And Tom Condon mentioned that a study was done that 68,000 more uh, affordable housing um, units need to be built to really satisfy the need. Does that number sound right to you? The estimates vary from somewhere around 68,000 to 90,000. Um, it's it's a lot. You know, we know we need a substantial amount of housing. The question is how much do we need to actually um, shift the costs of the housing? Mm. Tom? Oh, I, I just want to correct something I said earlier because I've now, I now have the actual number. The Malloy administration since 2011 has financed the construction of about 21,000 affordable units, 14,500 built or under construction, 6,500 in the pipeline, and the investment was just over a billion dollars, and I just wanted to correct that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and Alicia, I'll go back to you. Um, so we were talking about affordable housing units. Who are the people that are, that are, um, that are living in these affordable homes? 
So that also um, varies depending upon, uh, you know, what type of affordable home or unit that it is. Um, There are half of all renters uh, in the state are paying more than 30% of their income on their housing, and about a quarter of a million are paying more than 50% of their income towards their housing. Um, We know that the need, I can tell you that the need for affordable housing most um, significantly impacts people who are um, either extremely low income or very low income in our state. Now, when we talk about um, efforts to reduce homelessness in Connecticut, um, you know, can you ex- walk us through, you know, what has been achieved, but then with uh, future budget issues, not only in Connecticut, but in Washington, how can, how will this, these efforts uh, be derailed? So there's been, I think, there's a wonderful story to tell about the collaboration, the work that's been done in Connecticut. Um, you know, we consider it a success story. Um, we don't. We believe it's important to share that this success did not happen overnight. Um, through years of planning and collaboration, um, and investment in leadership over more than a decade, uh, we're now at the point where we have made veterans homelessness rare and brief in Connecticut, and we've figured out how to. Um, really tackle chronic homelessness, which is homelessness amongst individuals who are um, long-term, have long-term and repeated episodes of homelessness and also have um, serious um, disabilities, often serious mental health and substance abuse issues. And it's a relatively small um, population of people who, who are in homelessness. They have multiple compounding uh, social and economic barriers. And then this even smaller cohort who are really grappling with some complex problems. Um, We're at the point now where, um, actually in December of 2016, our governor announced that we had matched every chronically homeless person in the state um, with a housing resource. The last time I looked, we had less than 300 people in the state who were chronically homeless and less than 100 that hadn't been matched to a housing resource. And Alicia, how does that happen? So I mentioned housing vouchers through HUD. Uh, what happens if that gets cut? So right now we use a variety, um, you know, the state leadership in Connecticut and what has really been invested through um, over the years, but really the acceleration of the, and the strength of those investments through the Malloy administration and the General Assembly supporting that has enabled us to have state resources for things like permanent supportive housing and rapid rehousing and support for um, our regional community-wide teams that are tackling this problem at the local level. And so we, ha- we must preserve those resources in order for us to be able to maintain the progress that we made. We've created a very effective system in the state um, where we've really reduced any duplication. Um, everybody's working together. We know who is homeless in every community in the state, and we're matching them to a housing resource. So we have an efficient uh, and effective system, but it relies on being able to exit people to a housing resource. And so there are some critical areas of funding in our uh, state budget that um, we have been working very hard with our partners to preserve. At the state level, those have been largely preserved um, the most critical areas of funding in the governor's uh, proposed budget, as um, as they have in all of the legislative budget proposals in large part, uh, with the exception of um, there are proposals um, 
to eliminate the Community Investment Act dollars. Um, and there's also a proposal to merge the Department of Housing into uh, the Department of Economic and Community Development. Both of these uh, two proposals we think would have very damaging impacts on the progress that we've made to end homelessness in the state. At the federal level, um, there's a ton of uncertainty, um, of course. Uh, we know what the Trump administration is proposing. They want to downsize Section 8 uh, by approximately 250,000 vouchers. Um, they want to eliminate the housing trust fund. They include severe cuts to public housing in their budget. And they also cut uh, include cuts to the McKinney-Vento accounts, which is really the largest federal program that's targeted to ending homelessness. And there's over $300 million in cuts proposed. Uh, and Alicia, we're almost out of time. I just wanted to go back to Tom Condon. Well, I just want to just echo something Alicia said. Uh, supportive housing, I, I think, is one of the great social innovations of the last 50 years. It has made a huge difference in communities um, in Connecticut and all across the country. The, the concept of getting somebody housing and then bringing the services there and it is it is it's economically more sensible, vastly more humane, and even you know even creates jobs in the buildings. It it, it has been a marvelous innovation, and cutting the funding for it would be criminal. And we should say, uh, you know, again, questions about what's going to happen <clears throat> in Washington to certain funds through HUD, but. Uh, even reductions in, in safety net programs that could that are keeping people from being homeless today, they could be you know without a home tomorrow. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And Alicia's right. It was a scary prospect. Yeah. Well, I want to thank Alicia Woodsby, Executive Director of Partnership for Strong Communities, and she actually authored a Connecticut Mirror op-ed, uh, which we will be tweeting out um, at Where We Live. Alicia, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And Tom Condon, writer for CT Mirror, mm-hmm. covers urban and regional affairs. Former chief editor writer for the Hartford Current. Tom, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure, Lucy. Thank you. Uh, Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown produced this show. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.